grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Christ is risen. Alleluia. Permit me today to begin not with the first day of the week on Easter like our gospel from John 20 does, but with the first day of creation. As God's word says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the world in just six days, forming out of nothing everything that exists simply by speaking, by the word of the voice of God. That, my dear friends, is simply remarkable. The voice of God can bring all things into being. Many have desired to wish for things or think happy thoughts, talk their way into obtaining the various things that they want, but God, by his divine ability, formed out of nothing the universe and all that is in it by his very voice. As you are well aware, the creation account is widely disputed Many figure there's too much evidence for an old earth or for various evolutionary processes that eventually resulted in man. And so they think that this word of God must be inaccurate. For those who doubt the creation narrative as written in Genesis 1 and 2, remember that Jesus himself quotes those chapters that Jesus himself attests to the truth of creation. And also, even before carbon dating and before evolutionary theories were invented by man, some have had even then questioned the biblical record. 500 years ago, Dr. Martin Luther offered some wise words to those who doubt. He said, when Moses writes that God created heaven and earth and whatever is in them in six days, then let this period continue to have been six days and do not venture to devise any comment according to which six days were one day. But if you cannot understand how this could have been done in six days, then grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. For you are to deal with scripture in such a way that you bear in mind that God himself says what is written. But since God is speaking, it is not fitting for you to wantonly to turn his word into the direction you wish to go. So on the first day of the week, the day that we now call Sunday, God said, let there be light and there was light. On the sixth day, the day we now call Friday, God made man in a remarkable departure from his usual work of creation. Instead of speaking, he formed the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. God then... Recognizing that it is not good for Adam to be alone, he caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he took one of the ribs from Adam's side and built that rib into a woman and Adam 
of course, received her with great joy. The scriptures declare that on the seventh day, God rested. And by doing so, God set the pattern for his people throughout th through this work of creation that throughout the Old Testament, the last day of the week, the seventh day, was to be a day of rest, the Sabbath day, so that God's people will have a full day set aside to hear the life-saving, life-giving word of God. When Adam and Eve then did not listen to the word of God, but instead listened to the lies of the tempter and also figured that their own senses must have some greater knowledge than God, seeing that the fruit looked pleasing to her eye, she sinned and Adam along with her eating of that forbidden fruit. And they brought the entire world into sin. But despite their rebellion, God spoke a word of promise to them that he would take away their sins through her seed. And God fulfilled his promise on, as you know, Good Friday. Jesus, through the shedding of his innocent blood, bore the world's sin in his own body, and by doing so, he redeemed all mankind. He paid for the sins of the entire world through his sacrificial death. And so we can say, just as God created man on the sixth day, so also he redeemed man on the sixth day of the week. And just as God rested on the seventh day of creation, so the body of our Lord Jesus Christ rested in the, on, in the tomb on the seventh day of the week on Holy Saturday. And then there is the next day, the eighth day, which is the beginning of a new week. And Jesus, the Lord of life, rose triumphantly from the grave, just as he said he would, and just as the scriptures had prophesied, the word of God, which is infallible and true, is proven yet again to be honest to us. God's word does not fail, nor does God's word tell lies. Now that evening, still the first day of our Lord's resurrection, the disciples are hiding behind locked doors. As John reports, who was among them, for fear of the Jews. The reports were coming in, though, that Christ is risen. Some had already seen him, and some had heard the report from an angel. It should have been no real surprise. After all, Jesus did indeed declare that he would rise. But as we reflected on last Sunday, it was hard for them to unsee what they had seen on Good Friday. Last week, we heard of the women who wanted to give Jesus that proper burial right away on Sunday morning, wondering who's going to roll this tombstone away so that we can do it. And once they learned from the angel that Jesus is risen, they were too afraid to say anything even though they were told to go tell the disciples and Peter that our Lord had been raised. Also, I must admit something to you, and that is last week I stumbled a little bit during the prayers of the church. 
not only do I just do that once in a while, but there was a little bit more of a reason for it. And that is, as I was preparing for the service, I downloaded from the Synod's website the prayers of the church, which I typically use on Sunday mornings. Our Synod's Commission on Worship puts them together, and sometimes I need to make a few changes to fit our context, or maybe I disagree with a wording choice or something like that. And there was a wording choice that I had planned to change, but for whatever reason forgot to and had to make the edit on the fly during the service. What did I want to change? The prayer asked for greater faith than the women. That's how it was written. And I didn't like that. I didn't like it because it wasn't just the women who were afraid or troubled by hearing the resurrection account. But as we heard today, that the men that Jesus was raising up to be apostles were also afraid. And we heard that Thomas doubted. These men were afraid because if the Jews were willing to put Jesus on a false trial and nail him to a tree, what will they do to his followers? They did not want to endure the same things that Jesus went through. And it might be easy for us to sit on our easy chairs and criticize them saying, didn't they realize that Jesus would rise from the dead? And if Christ is risen, why are they so afraid? What do they seriously have to be afraid of? But remember, they, like the women, would have had a difficult time processing all these things that are happening so quickly. And also, Jesus had warned them that they would endure suffering on account of his name. He declared to them, If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If the world, or if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. These words of Jesus, as recorded in John 15, were words that Jesus spoke to them on Maundy Thursday, just a few days earlier. Of course, the prophecies that Jesus would rise from the dead ought to be fresh in their minds. They saw that Jesus had power over death when he had recently raised Lazarus from the dead. But these words that Jesus had spoken to them of the persecution they would endure may also have been dwelling very heavily in their minds since this persecution would directly affect them. Today, many are still timid when telling others of the good news of Jesus Christ. We heard of persecution and suffering that can take place in countries through the presentation with Lutheran Bible translators. But what about today in America, where we have freedom of speech and our freedom is protected by the Bill of Rights? Why are we 
sometimes afraid. Don't we realize that Jesus is risen? What then do we have to be afraid of? When we recognize that we often close our lips because we're afraid of receiving scorn or jeers, then maybe we shouldn't be so hard on those disciples that Easter morning and evening. The same fears the disciples faced are held by many of Christ's disciples today. In fact, we often do not want to even face our own families. Instead of inviting those who might be guests in our house to God's house on a Sunday morning, Adding these words, it is true you cannot commune at grace yet because you are not in our fellowship and good standing, but we want you to attend anyway. Instead, we refuse to face that hardship, that simple invitation, and we sometimes choose to stay home with our families because it is easier or we simply go to church without even asking them to join us. Why be afraid when God's word teaches it clearly? The scriptures teach us boldness and confidence in Christ and his word. Even connecting this word to the confidence we should have in Christ Psalm 56 says, In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Jesus gave every reason for the disciples to stop being fearful when he appeared in their midst and behind those locked doors and said those wonderful gospel-filled words of absolution. Peace be with you. You also hear those same gospel-filled words of absolution when you are invited to the Lord's table. After the words of institution are spoken, the peace of the Lord be with you always. You are absolved. It shows that this is not simply a well-wish or a friendly greeting. Our Lord Jesus Christ was pronouncing his peace upon them. And the resurrected, that the resurrected Christ is victorious. He is granting them the victory. They have peace with God. And so do we who are baptized into Christ. Jesus even sent the disciples out on Easter Sunday to forgive and retain sins. The sending that he does, in John, as we heard in John 20 today, as part of our Lord's institution of the pastoral office and the commission for them to exercise the keys, that is, to forgive sins, that's the loosing key, and to retain the sins of the unrepentant as long as they do not repent, that is, the binding key. Pastors must forgive the sins of the unrepentant and retain the sins of the unrepentant. This means that he must refuse to absolve the unrepentant and forgive those, even those who have done heinous and vile sins when that sinner repents. Might seem to be an easy task. But when the community may hate someone for what a man has done, 
God's servant is called to forgive that person, no matter how vile or heinous it has been, when that person is repentant and trusts in Jesus for his salvation. Or on the flip side, maybe the community will ignore the seemingly innocuous sins of a well-known and well-loved community member. But when the pastor recognizes that he remains unrepentant and refuses to turn from his way or does not trust in Jesus, then the pastor must keep him in his sins, bind him until he finally repents. The temptation is to basically say everyone is forgiven and not consider penitence, but pastors must always resist that temptation for giving into it is dishonesty. When Jesus instituted the office of the public ministry, he breathed on his disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. This even harkens back to the creation account where the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. And even more so, it brings to mind the creation of man, where God breathed into the dust-shaped nostrils the breath of life to bring life to the first human. And now Jesus is breathing on his disciples, giving them the Holy Spirit. It's interesting to note that the Hebrew word for, for spirit, word, and, or wind, and breath, spirit, wind, and breath are all the same word. The Holy Spirit brings life to mankind. For as it is written, we were once dead in our sins and in our trespasses. We are brought alive in the waters of holy baptism and through the proclamation of of the word, the preaching of the gospel, and the pronouncement of the forgiveness of sins. What a joy this is, that we who were once dead in our sin are now made alive in Christ Jesus our Lord, that he took our hearts of stone and made them hearts of living flesh, and that we now live and abide in Christ, for he has cleansed us of our sin and invites us to participate in the fellowship of his body and blood. As you know, in the Old Testament, they, they had the day set aside on Saturday for worship and rest. Our worship is now on Sunday, the first day of the week, as we continue to celebrate our Lord's resurrection and, and, and we give the first fruits of our time with the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. That Sabbath requirement to rest on the seventh day that particular and specific day in the Old Testament is now fulfilled in Christ, so there's no longer that law and command upon us. There is no longer then a command to worship that worship must fall on a specific day, but it certainly makes sense to follow the examples of the apostles who on the first day of the week gathered to break bread to celebrate the sacrament. We hear the absolution, guaranteeing that the sins of the past week are gone when we come forward into God's house on this first day of the week. We go to the Lord's altar, beginning our week aright, 
as we receive the body and blood of Jesus for our complete and full forgiveness, granting us a unity with Christ and our brothers and sisters in Christ, not only present, but throughout the globe and with those who have gone before us in the faith. And this gives us a glimpse of the new creation that we will fully enjoy when Jesus returns in glory on that last day. Thanks be to God. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.